Ephesians chapter 2, picking up at verse 1, as we head into this new chapter of Ephesians and in this great passage. The first 10 chapters of Ephesians are well known in the church worlds. They, they say some of the most um, dear and um, coarse things to our doctrine of our faith, what we believe about ourselves and about how we are saved. So I'm excited over the next couple of weeks to dive into this with you. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil in case you were wondering, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, um, one of my favorite shows that I have, um, one of those shows that um, I guess every once in a while I could be accused of binging on in the last couple of years has been a BBC mystery show called Endeavor. It follows a particular homicide detective named Inspector Morse as he solves uh, very complex murders uh, and cases in Oxford, England during the, the setting of the 1960s and the 1970s. But one of the most, um, uh, one of the most interesting characters on the show is, a, a, is the coroner, a guy named Dr. Max Debrin, who is the, the local um, mortician and coroner. He is a highly educated, a dry-witted, anal-retentive in his attention to detail, and frequently using sarcastic puns and constantly using the, the Latin medical jargon and biological terms in his descriptions for what has happened to his various cadavers that lay down in front of him. But like so many of the morticians and coroners in detective shows, he is critical to the work of the detectives because he is doing the one who does the autopsies. The autopsies. And he is helping answer this question. What happened to this person? What happened to this beautiful person who now is in this grotesque place and death on a slab on a table? And we could ask the same question, actually, of the whole human race. What has happened to us? What is wrong with us? You ever asked your kids that? You look at their behavior and you go, what is wrong with you? A young man this week from a town not dissimilar to Carrollton, from a church that on the surface of it is quite frankly very similar to ours, drove to multiple salons and took the life of people he had never met and never seen. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? What has happened to us? You know, in the midst of the chaos of the early years of World War I, while the world was distracted and unable to aid the, the, what was going on in Turkey, the, the Turks thought to themselves, how can we use, while the whole world is in, battling, in, in, in battle and fight against one another, how do we can best use this time? Oh, I know. How about we slaughter the Armenians? And over the course of about a year to two years, they took out over a million lives. Why? Just because they didn't like them. What is wrong with us? Stalin killed 40 million of his own people, pot pot 20 million of his own and uh, we have killed 20, 60 million unborn children in the last 40 years in our own country. What is wrong with us? Go to any chat room, any comment section on social media, and watch the dialogue and look at the way people speak to one another, and it will not take you a full minute to ask yourself, 
what in the world is wrong with us? What is wrong with us? How are we to assess the state of human nature? Well, it ain't good. I can tell you that much. But in the whole of the human race, we have really only seen three basic answers to the question, what is wrong with us? What is the state of human nature? There's three primary views that have coursed over the course of of philosophy and, and religious thought about the state of human nature. One is that we are basically neutral in our state in our, as a nature, that we are not good, we are not bad. We simply, every moment, simply choose in that moment. We choose good things or bad things, and you're constantly in that neutral state going, you can constantly always choose in one direction or the other. That's one view. The second view is often held within Christi- amongst Christians is that man is not well. We ain't good. Things are bad. If we are sick, we, things are pretty sorrowful and pitiful about us. Even perhaps we are mortally sick, but we aren't dead yet. Things are bad off, but things could be worse about us. And th- there is indeed something wrong with human beings. That, that situation is not hopeless, they would say. That people are at least, they're not quite dead. They're at least, there's some inkling of hope there, some inkling of good left. And all it would take is God and his grace to give us a push in the right direction. Well, the third view, and I think the biblical view, and the one I'm going to espouse this morning, is that man is not just not well, and it's not just that we have a serious diagnosis, and it's not just that we are sick, but we are dead. That is the description Paul uses. It's, and there is a significant difference between number two and number three. Mostly dead is very different than dead. If you didn't learn that, simply go watch Princess Bride, and you can watch and listen to Mad Max when they bring Sweet Wesley in after his great torture, and he, Mad Max says, he asks him, is he dead or is he mostly dead because there is a big difference. If he's dead, the only thing to do is to simply go through his pockets looking for loose change. If he's mostly dead, then we have some hope. But Paul says we are dead. D-E-D, dead. Roadkill. Paul says we are dead in trespasses and sins, but what does that mean? And what are the implications for us? <laughs> you were dead, it says. That's not good. Well, hey, let's let understand spiritual death this morning, because that's what it talks about. That's what he's referring to. We're clearly alive. At least I think you are. You may not look it at the various points during the sermon, but you are clearly alive. You are spiritually dead, though, is what we are told before we come to Christ. And so what does that mean? I want to give you three words. Three words. And I had a wedding yesterday where I used four Ps for alliteration for the wedding, and so I was in a good mood for alliteration this week. And so, well, three S's in understanding spiritual death this morning. First, spiritual death means separation. Spiritual death means separation. Spiritual death is separation. If we are to understand what dead and sin means, then perhaps we should look back to the first sin and see what happened about it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, it says this. God is talking to Adam and Eve, and he says, The Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely not eat of, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Die. So, They will die on the day they eat of this tree. And so what happens in chapter 3? Wouldn't you know? They eat of it. They eat of the tree, and what happens? They don't die. Right? God says you're going to die. Eve and Adam take a bite of the apple. They don't keel over. They don't, you know, they're not snow white. They don't eat the poison apple and, and fall over. This isn't what happens. So what actually dies? In Genesis 3, chapter uh, verse 7 and 8, it says that when they realize that what they have done and they hear the voice of God coming to spend time with them after they've sinned against God by eating of the tree, how do they respond? What do they do? They run away from God. 
They hide themselves. They separate themselves from God. And God, even after having run after them and clothed them with an animal skin and speaking to them of what's going to happen, he, what does God do in view of their sin? It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, that God drove them away from him. Drove them away from him. In other words, what died on the day that they sinned? Their relationship with God is what died. That's what it means to spiritually die. On the day that God expelled them from his presence, do you see what spiritual death is? Spiritual death is separation from God. That's what it is. We tend to think of death in terms of cessation. We also think in terms of physical death in terms of separation, right? But the soul and the body are separate from another. And so spiritual death is separation from between us and God. And do you see the cause and effect dynamic here? Paul says, you are dead in sin. Actually, in the, literally, in, in most of the translations, there's a causal nature to that preposition in. That the sin and the trespasses have caused the death. The sin causes our spiritual death. And where Paul says in, in, says in verse 1 and 2, that where you're dead in trespasses and sins, it says we are dead because of those sins. And so Adam and Eve die spiritually. They're separated from God because of their sin. Sin is rejecting God's rule in our life and ultimately choosing to reject our relationship with God. Romans 1, another great passage. Well, if you like hanging in passage, out in passages that are a lot of bad news. Romans 1 says, no one loves God. We have all turned away. We have all become worthless. We like to think of sin as behavioral, and indeed it is. But before it is behavioral, it is far more relational. It is far more relational. The problem is we don't love God. We won't, don't want him to be our parent. We don't want him to be our Lord, and we don't want him to be our king. We want to be the playwright and the director. We don't want to be an actor in the play. We want to write it ourselves. And the Bible says, and even talks about being, needing the face of God and needing to, to be close to God. That, that if you were to have life, you need connection to the God who has made you. And the, it, Paul says the issue is this, is that we have separated ourselves from God and God has driven us away. And therefore, we do not have the face of God. It actually says this in Isaiah 59, verse 2, that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear you. You know what it means when someone won't give you their face? It's not good. I had this experience. It's not a fun experience as a pastor, especially living in a small town. Sometimes it would be nice if I lived in some place rather larger in which I will be going down the grocery store and I will turn around, turn the, the corner onto a new aisle and down at the end of the aisle, somebody else turning onto the, onto the aisle and they used to be a member of King's Chapel. <laughs> and we make eye contact and they are suddenly doing a reverse like, eh? like they play a really cool move with their carts to get out of my way. Why? They don't want to give me their face. It means... We got a problem. Things are no bueno between us in their minds. It's the same thing with our kids, right? When we go discipline our kids, you, you chastise your children. What are the, what's the first thing they do? They drop their face and they turn their face away. Life is having the face of God. Death is having God's face turned away from you. What does it gain a man if he has the whole world but does not have God? The deepest longing of our heart is to be restored to our God and to have him. Dallas Willard tells the story of a boy whose mother died at a, at a, when he was a, a, at a young age. And in the trauma of losing his mother, he, he couldn't sleep at night. And so he would crawl up into his dad's bed. But it was not simply to be physically close to his father, such that, 
So he, was so, he has so longed to see his father's face such that whenever his father, with, if for, and while he, his father slept or he, was, while he tried to get comfortable in the bed, if he turned his body away from his son and turned his face away from his son, his face, his son would look at him and he would go, reach over and grab his face and he would say, Daddy, I, I want your face, Daddy. I want your face. He needed to see his father's face. We have to have the face of God. But death is to be separated or to forget or to be rejected from the face of God. That's what that spiritual death is. Alexander Solzhenitsyn looked out over Russia in the middle part of the 20th century, and he said it was the, he looked back at their history and said it was the motherland of so much of what was good in this world, great art and great beauty and great dance and great music, and they had become simply a country in his mind of alcoholism and divorce and vile things such as sex trafficking and mob oppression and horrific levels of injustice. And he asked, what happened? And he wrote a 12-volume series on the history of Russia. And he said it was the old babushkas, the old ladies that wore the caps on their head who told them what happened. They said this, we forgot God. We forgot God. Spiritual death is separation from God. That's what it is. So dead and sin means you're separated from God. But that picture of physical death, that metaphor, also tells us the scope of our spiritual death. That our spiritual death is holistic or it is systemic. It's full. It is system-wide. It affects everything. And so that's the second point. Spiritual death is systemic. It's systemic. Physical death involves the entire shutting down of the whole physical system. When someone's gallbladder stops working, like a few members of our church in the last couple of weeks, this has happened. We don't say when they have their gallbladder removed, well, they're dead now. No. We say one part. There's only one part of them. But death is when the entire body system has shut down. It is catastrophic. It is complete organ failure. Now, the way this has most often been talked about theologically in the history of Christian circles is that we are, we could call ourselves totally depraved, totally depraved, which means the whole character of man is morally bankrupt, is morally dead. There's not some part of us that we can look at where we can say, yes, 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 all, yes, I know that my desires are messed up, but my mind still works correctly. Or I know that my mind is kind of messed up, but my emotions are correct. No, every part of us, all aspects of who we are is fallen and separated from God's. The whole character of man is what? To put it relationally, against God's. Not just part of you, but all of you. We don't feel rightly towards God. We don't think rightly about God. It says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's not we're neutral to God or we have some bad days with God. We are set hostile towards God for it does not submit to God's law. In fact, what does it say? Indeed, it cannot. That is, an, we are unable Ephesians 4.18 says something similar, that they are darkened, those who are sinful, in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And most foundationally, that verse points us to this. Why is your mind darkened to the Lord? Because your heart is darkened to the Lord. And what that refers to when your heart is, is broken, it means that your desire system is broken, that what you want is broken. In other words, again, to put it back in relational terms, the reason why our whole system is broken in relationship to our, to our God is because we don't want him. We don't desire him. Instead, what do we want? What does it say in verses 2 and verse 3? What do we follow? We follow the world. We follow the evil one. We carry out, it says, the works of the flesh. 
And we'll talk about that more in a couple weeks. We'll come back to those things and look at them in more detail. Instead of falling, falling hard after God, we walk in sin. Walked in sin means you follow the world, the flesh, and the devil. This means that even the things that appear to be outwardly good about us are selfishly motivated. In other words, the, the doctrine of total depravity does not mean that you, we are all Hitlers. You know, in other words, it doesn't mean that you've done outwardly is the worst things you can possibly do, but it means that the desire system of your heart so that even the good things are selfishly and evilly motivated. Here's a class of objection. I can't believe that all the things I do are actually sinful. I actually, I can't believe that my work for Habitat for Humanity or at the Special Olympics, that those things are sinful at the core. Well, you might ask, a friend might ask them, well, why do you do those things? Why do you go spend an entire Saturday working for Habitat for Humanity or, or going all over the country to work for the Special Olympics? And what do people say? Because it makes me feel good. What are they motivated by? Serving God and serving others or what? It's me, me, me. Martin Luther defines sin as homo curvitas. It's the self curved in on itself. You ever seen somebody with incredibly long nails? What eventually happens to them? They curl back around and it gets gross and it gets creepy. Sin is self-absorption. Sin is life circled and surrounded about me, where I am the sinner. I choose not to exalt, love, honor God or anybody else. I am ultimately about me. And a systemically dead body is something that becomes, guess what, increasingly ugly, increasingly ugly and grotesque. A physical body is indeed ugly. The, the kind of death that Paul talks about in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, is a grotesque one. One in which, although dead in the most foundational sin, a sinner nevertheless still walks around this world actively appearing to live. In other words, Paul is the first one who gives us the illustration of zombies. That is what we are pre-Christ. That we are the living dead. We are those who are spiritually rotten to the core, and we are we are falling apart physically in all aspects of who we are, and yet there's still some sort of physical life going on. A zombie is a person who has died, but nevertheless continues to be able to walk around. And to make matters worse, the zombie is decaying and putrefying even as it moves around. And this is the picture that Paul provides for us, the living dead. Isn't that lovely? But he says that's the human condition, dead. Do you know why a physically dead body is ugly? Because when a body dies, it cannot hold itself together. Death always leads to disintegration. The chemicals and the parts of the body that held that through the vitality that was in it, now that vital principle is gone and the body begins to disintegrate and fall apart. The longer the body is dead, the more it falls apart and the more it moves and falls into pieces. And anyone who's alive looking at a decaying body is repulsed. This is how God describes our sin. This is how Paul describes who we are pre-Christ. Spiritual zombies, the living dead walking around. It's systemic and it affects every part of us. And that therefore leads to the last point. Spiritual death is therefore slavery. Slavery. Romans 6 verse 17 says, You were once slaves to sin. By that I mean you can't get out of it. You're stuck. It is a perpetuating systemic cycle that makes it impossible for you to free yourself. You're enslaved. You're imprisoned. In verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says that you were dead in the sins in which you walked. Now that term walked, we have to understand, we tend to think of it, we think of walking as a great activity. Something you're going to do with your family on a, on a nice, bright, and sunshiny day. 
We, we were kind of we're wandering around with a general direction, and that's what we think of walk. But actually, the, the, the image here is actually far more something more akin to what the soldiers did when they were captured by the Japanese on Bataan and the march that they endured. It is a march of bondage is what it is. That's the picture. To be dead in something, in this case, dead in sin, refers to being under the dominion, under the bondage. Physical death means your body is under the dominion of death and there's nothing you can do about it. And so it is with spiritual death. And what I've highlighted here is that this idea of being under dominion or being under bondage of sin is that this form of enslavement means you can't remove yourself from it. You can't remove yourself from yourself. If your nature is sinful, more of you and your efforts is only going to produce more of what? More sin. Sin has taken over your mind, and all ideas to remove yourself from sin are born of sin. Sin has taken over your desires, and so you want to be free because your sinful desires, though, are contrary, though, are contrary to freedom. And even when someone comes to the gates and they say, hey, 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 don't you want to be free? You can't hear it. So when someone, if they are not alive spiritually, they can hear preaching, and they can hear teaching, and you can read Bible passages to them till they're blue in the face, but they have no sensation in the ability to hear. There is no outside stimuli that can get in. And so 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are to be spiritually discerned. He is like a man trying to... <laughs> pick up radio signals with a toaster. That's what it's like to be spiritually dead. The signals are there, but he lacks the equipment to interact with them. Not only can he not enter the kingdom, he can't even perceive it. He is dead. He is unresponsive. He is unaware. He is disconnected from the whole spiritual realm. And so you can, you can preach and you can teach, but if there is no life there, it doesn't do anything. So if you can't do anything, you can't remove yourself from slavery. And the image that the image, this is so different from the image that we most often portray to people about what it looks like to become a Christian. What we go most often is we say that you're, here's the image, you're lost at sea, out on a little rubber dinghy, and you're in dire straits, and you have no water, and you're, you're surrounded by sharks everywhere, but God in his grace has flown out on a helicopter, and he has repelled down with his rope, and he extends to you his hand and his rope, and he says, if you will just simply grab hold and hang on for dear life, I will pull you up out of the water, and I will save you. That image is wrong. It is wrong. You are dead in the boat. In fact, you're not even in the boat. You're, you're shark chum. You're down at the bottom of the sea. You're a, not a dead, you're a dead body at best. What is it that you, it says that you're sinking? It's not that you're sinking in sin. You are sunk in sin. You're already sunk. It's not that you're currently drowning in sin and coming up for the last time and you need to reach to God. No, you already are drowned or at the bottom of the ocean. Not that you're actually on the surface holding out for Jesus, but you're at the very bottom of the sea and you don't even know that he's there and aware that he's reaching out to you. Therefore, like a spiritual corpse, a sinner is unable to make a single, single move toward God, to think a single right thought about God or even correctly respond to God unless God is first present and makes them alive. Makes them alive. See, we're like the picture, you've seen this over and over and over again over the years. A hurricane comes through, the levees break, and the nursing home filled with wheelchair-bound people are there in the nursing home 
and floodwaters rising up, sewer water, they can't get out. And you go, get out of there, leave. Why, why don't they leave? Because they can't. And that's us. They have to be rescued fully and completely. And that's what Christianity is about. It's about a rescue. It's not about you reaching out and grasping God. It's about him coming and rescuing you. And here's, let me, just so I could apply this in a couple directions this morning close. For those of you that maybe you are spiritually alive, do you understand do you, how beautiful the grammar is here? You were once dead. The past tense is such good news. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, this says in verse 1 through 3, in which you once walked. The gospel in verses 1 through 3 is in the grammar and the word once. Following the course of this world, following the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Have you ever seen before and after pictures? The before picture, mm, no bueno. The after picture, yay! And you don't know where to rejoice about the, about the after picture unless you've seen the before picture. And therefore we remember who we once were. Without the grace of God, we were dead at the bottom of the sea. The gravity of our previous condition actually serves to magnify the wonder of God's mercy to us. Have you forgotten? There was a book by a guy named Michael Horton a number of years ago. The title of the book was simply this, Putting the Amazing Back into Grace. Reminding us once again that what we have in Christ Jesus in our salvation is indeed amazing. But I'd also say this, Oh, sin, man, being in sin is grotesque, isn't it? And our response to the world around us often is to shrink back and go, oh, oh. Brothers and sisters, there is no room for superiority and pride, is there? You did nothing to save yourself. You did nothing. If you see a turtle on a fence post, what do you know? He didn't get himself there. And if you see any life or righteousness in your life or those or other people who claim to be Christ, you can know this, you didn't get yourself there. Any beautification that has happened in you, it was not of your own doing, it was of God's doing. We all were, it says, the universality of being lost and dead in sin. <laughs> so that's for you Christians. For those of you who maybe you don't know if you're a follower of Jesus and you go, this seems like really bad news. Like, I don't come to church to be told that I'm like a corpse. That's, that's kind of offensive. It is offensive. It is offensive. And, and then, you ever had this happen? Ever someone, don't you hate the question when someone walks up to you and they go, do you want the good news or the bad news first? And you go, uh, I don't know how to answer this. I don't know how to answer this. I, I, I hate that question. But if, actually, in this case, you know what's really important? If you don't know the bad news, you can't have the good news. If you don't know the bad news, if you don't understand and embrace the bad news about yourself, you cannot have the good news. You can't be saved unless you realize you're in peril. And in fact, if you realize you're in peril, maybe you're not dead anymore. Because dead people don't realize they're in peril. If you don't know you need to be rescued, it's very hard to rescue you. The fact is that while it is inevitably in the Bible, you can't be saved unless you know you need to be saved. You can't be rescued until you know you need to be rescued. This is all important. 
You need to be rescued implies what? You can't rescue yourself. We just went over this. In fact, all of your attempts to unhinge yourself, to free yourself from the, the, the enslavement that has you holding you down to the bottom of the sea, killing you, is just causing you more deeply, more trouble. So if you said, that's it, I have kids now, it's time to get my act together. I'm gonna go to church. We're gonna get the kids in church. We're gonna clean this up. We're gonna make them good. We're gonna make them moral or make them great creatures. But you have not done so by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone and saying, I am dead spiritually. I'm simply me walking around physically, but I realize that there has not been any life in my life. There's no life, spiritual life. I've not wanted God. I simply want good kids. I haven't wanted God's. Then here's what I would say. You say, God, help, and you shut up. That's it. The prodigal on his way home from all of his journeys, I love how the Jesus story of the Bible puts it. He's on his way home, and he's practicing his I'm sorry speech. He still doesn't get repentance. He says, Dad, make me a slave in your house. I'm not worthy to be your son. Shut up, son. Shush, shush. Just, just shush. Because what does the father do? He says nothing. He grabs him and he kisses him and he hugs him and he embraces him and he brings him into the party. And so that's what salvation repentance is. Nothing in my hands I bring. No offer to be your servant and your slave. No offer to bring any, I have nothing. I'm dead spiritually. I've not even wanted you up to this point. Would you take me home? There was an earthquake a number of years ago that hit Haiti. Jeez, Haiti, gosh. I've been to Haiti. I've never been to a worse place in my life. I thought Florida was hot. Haiti makes Florida look like it's a cool, you know, has a nice cool breeze. Oh, Haiti is such a terrible place. It's been ruined and racked by the fall in so many different ways. You know, it has no topsoil. It should be, be, have beautiful beaches and have great resorts, but it doesn't. There was an earthquake there a number of years ago, and there was a man, he was off at work when the earthquake struck, and his, his whole family was crushed under their house, and everybody perished except for his five-year-old daughter. And there was no equipment to get her out. He went running all over his town, looking, he was crying out, but they were busy helping more important and significant buildings. So on the first day, he's talking to his little girl, and she's speaking back to him. Somewhere down in the rubble, she can speak to him. So the first day, he lays there, and he speaks to her, gives her attention. At various times, he keeps trying to run around, call out to other people, asking for help. What a horrific feeling. The second day, he's with her through the day, and they speak. On the third day, though, there are no, there are no words. On the fourth day, there are no words. Finally, on the fifth day, he commandeers some equipment he thought, at least, maybe I can recover the bodies of my family, of my little girl. And as the machine dug into the pile of the concrete, suddenly a weak little voice cried out, Daddy, be careful. I'm still here. She had a prosthetic leg, and she was dug out of the, out of the rubble. And this is your story, except you couldn't even cry out. Romans 3 says, you are under sin. It has crushed you, and you can't get out. But what does your father do? hands and feet, clawing at death itself to get you out. He does it all. He does it all. You can't lift it off, but your Father can. Praise be to God. Let's pray.
man, if you're somebody here this morning and you realize, man, I, I want good kids, but I don't want God. <laughs> I want a good life, but I don't want God. I want, I want to be a zombie in, in Gucci clothes. And I'm realizing that is not enough. The call of repentance is to simply say this, God, I, I have nothing, save me. Save me. So if you would you do that, do that this morning. If you're a Christian and you've done that, guess what? The whole Christian life is repentance, is waking up today and saying, God, my first breath spiritually was of your life, was you breathing life into me, and so is my breath today. So say, God, man, I have forgotten the beauty of your grace. Would you remind my soul and my heart once again? Father, do that to me for me. Lord, I've been angry this week at you. Remind me of your grace and mercy, of what I once was, what I am without you. Be merciful to me. Give me life, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.